you do belong to a different kind of kingdom. I'm not that significant. What can I really do? What difference can I really make? Also, you're going to be the most influential people in the world. What? The father that we have is someone who doesn't leave us crushed, but unburdens us. Well, good morning. Welcome to Campus House. My name is Rick. I'm one of the pastors here. It's really good to be with you this morning. And if you've been with us since the beginning of the semester, you know that we're doing the Sermon on the Mount. That's uh, Jesus' most famous teaching in all the Bible. And it occurs in the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, in chapter 5, 6, and 7. So it's the longest single recorded teaching we have of Jesus, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus had this group of followers who were with him and his disciples, a big crowd and then a bunch of disciples. He went up on this mountain and he began to teach them. And the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is uh, Jesus is showing his followers what does it look like to follow him in their everyday lives. So that's where we are. We're considering this on the ground level. Jesus is actually very down to earth. Even as he talks about heaven and glory and talks about God, he's deeply concerned with the way that we live our lives. And so that's what we're looking at, the Sermon on the Mount. And we're still in the early part of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible, uh, it's in chapter 5 of Matthew, and we're going to read a few verses from Matthew 5, particularly verses 10 to 16 this morning. So it's the end of the Beatitudes, uh, and then also some identity statements that he makes. This is Matthew 5, verse 10 to 16. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in, is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand so that it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Have you ever taken uh, Finders or the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram? I think that seems like everyone takes all of them these days, right? So we've all taken these. uh, And why do we take these? We take these psychology-based tests to learn more about ourselves. We want to know who we are and how we interact with the world. Because understanding ourselves tells us a little more about uh, who we are and also how we influence things around us, what we're good at, what we're maybe not as good at. 
Uh, a few years ago, I took strength finders again, and my top strength was achiever, uh, which surprised no one in my life. And as an achiever, uh, it was actually ironic. It was really helpful to learn that I was an achiever because it helped me rest more, which doesn't make sense on surface, but on the surface. But let me think about it this way. We all need rest, right? And so I was thinking a lot at that time about the Sabbath and how God calls us. In the Bible, there's a thing called the Sabbath. You're supposed to stop work every seventh day and rest. You're supposed to worship the Lord, to focus on Him, to consider all the good that He's given you. Thank Him for the work that He's provided the other six days, but to cease from all the other stuff that you do. And I realized that it's, it's the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments. And so it's a command, which means you're supposed to achieve it. So it actually really helped me to think about, I'm supposed to achieve rest. God calls us to that. I'm an achiever. I can do that. I can actually stop and rest. I know that seems a little ironic, but it was actually helpful. And it was helpful because it just shared, it helped me understand a little bit more about uh, how I interact with the world. The other thing it did was help me to consider what kind of influence I have on those around me. So if I'm very achievement driven and I, I go out and I get stuff done, well, if there's other people in my life who I love who just aren't as ambitious, that's not necessarily wrong. That actually might be a very good thing. Uh, and so how do I interact with them? Do I actually make their lives painful and difficult because I'm always hard charging? I'm always going ahead trying to get stuff done, right? We all have different things that shape us and reveal to us our identity, our personality, and the kind of influence that we have in the world. And uh, Jesus is talking about the kind of influence and the identity and the influence that you and I have in the world. See, he says in Matthew 5, verse 13 and then verse 16, he says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. And this is a really remarkable thing because it doesn't just say you are the salt, you are light, which we'll get into that. What does that mean? Why does he say that? But it also says you're the salt of the earth, the whole earth. You're the light of the world. And that is a stunning statement because of the people that Jesus is speaking to. If you go back to chapter 4, right before the Sermon on the Mount, the context of this, starting in verse 23 of chapter 24, Jesus, it says, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, really a tiny area in, in uh, Israel. Went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those who had seizures, those who were paralyzed, and he healed them all. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Those are all the people that he is speaking to. Then he goes up on the mountain and he preaches to these people who've been healed, who've been helped by him. But here's the thing, even though his fame, his reputation started to spread beyond the place where he was to these other places, the people that his reputation was spreading to were still unimportant people from insignificant towns in the vast Roman Empire. Most of these people were considered outcasts and nobodies. His own disciples were small-town fishermen, despised tax collectors, and one of them named Simon is called Simon the Zealot. And in those days, the word zealot meant like a religious fanatic. So essentially, one of Jesus' own disciples is someone who would be on a potential terrorist watch list today. These are his people. 
They have no particular political power. In fact, they were politically oppressed by the Romans. They were not well respected by other people groups. And then Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. These disciples who were seen as insignificant in the world, Jesus declares to be absolutely significant for the world. That's stunning. You know, as a pastor and a campus minister here uh, in, the, in West Lafayette and at Purdue, it seems to me like every week I meet people from a town in Indiana I've never heard of. You know, there's 41,000 students at Purdue and people are from all over the world but I don't even know my own local world that well. I meet people who say, I'm from Napanee, or I'm from Elkhart, or I'm from Huntington, or I'm from Shelbyville, or I'm from the region. That one took me a little bit to figure out. Uh, this week, I met somebody. He said, I'm from Fortville. I said, where is Fortville? Being from the East Coast originally, I have to get out Google Maps and look all these places up because I just don't know where they are in Indiana. And sometimes the students who come, especially from really small towns, they come here and they're like, this place is huge. And I moved here from Baltimore and St. Louis, and I think, this place is small. Right? And so, but they'll say, look, I'm from this one stoplight town, and, and there's so many people here. Uh, and, and I don't know, people from Purdue go all over the world, but I'm, I'm not that significant. What can I really do? What difference can I really make on campus, let alone in my future work or wherever I go? I don't come from anything big. And I have the joy of talking with people and saying, but do you know Jesus? And when people say, yeah, I, I do, I say, well, have you ever seen him work through you to influence those around you? Have you ever seen the way that your changed life has maybe it helped to change somebody else's life or do them some good? Then you're part of a movement that started over 2,000 years ago that isn't based on where you're from or how important other people say that you are. Your, your importance, your significance is based on how important Jesus says you are. And Jesus tells us, his people, his disciples, those who really follow him, that they have incredible significance wherever they go because of who we're associated with. To be associated with Jesus, twice in the Beatitudes that we read over the last couple weeks, he's mentioned the kingdom of God. To be associated with Jesus is to be associated with God's kingdom, which covers the whole earth. It's all that he's about. And so that changes our identity. It changes our impact. It changes our influence in whatever, the part, and in whatever part of the world you find yourself from or wherever part, whatever part of the world you go to. And so when Jesus talks about salt and light, he's actually talking about the importance of our relationship as the church to our local communities, to uh, the society and, and the world around us. This leads us to a question, right? What is the relationship Christian people are to have in society and in the world? What are Christians to be in the world, especially in our local communities, because this is the place where you and I have the most uh, connection to the rest of society, just where we live, where we work, where we learn. And when Jesus says that we're salt and light, he's describing the kind of influence we're to have in our local communities and then subsequently the world. And our relationship, he's saying, is to be one of great influence. Now, that seems very improbable because, one, think about the people Jesus was talking to. 
And two, we've spent time on the Beatitudes the last several weeks. And you, the last couple of weeks, do you remember what was in the Beatitudes? Jesus talks about people who are poor and poor in spirit. He talks about people who are mourners, people who are sad, who see the sad things in life and weep. He talks about people who are meek, or maybe you could say gentle, the gentle people. He talks about the people who are pure, who have good intentions and not mixed motives. They, they, they do the right kind of things. He talks about people who are, who are servant-hearted, who will lay down their lives for others, people who are merciful, right? People, um, people who, he says, love others in a costly way. And the question is, how can backwater people from small towns around Jerusalem and the Middle East, and maybe us today, who Jesus says are kingdom people because they're poor, they come from difficult or suffering, suffering types of backgrounds, they come from deplorable situations, or they're the kind of people who are so servant-hearted, they'll probably get walked on. They love to give themselves away to help others, but then they get walked on. And my question to you would be, what possible influence could people like that have in a hard and tough world? What lasting good can the poor, the forgiving, the humble have in a world that exalts wealth, blame, and power? What lasting good can people who are weeping at all the sorrows in life do? What lasting good can the, the merciful do? Those who are so full of helping other people that they might be in danger of becoming a doormat. Won't those kinds of people just get overwhelmed by the evil and the brokenness of the world? Won't they get overwhelmed by their own weaknesses, by all the ways they can't be great in the world? How can we achieve anything if Jesus says, this is our identity? It seems like he's lifting people up. He says, the poor have a kingdom. The merciful receive mercy. The meek, all these people will get great things. And then it seems like he puts them right back into a low position and says, because uh, remember verse 10, 11, and 12, oh, also these people will be persecuted. It's like he lifts us up only to go, oh, I put you right back into this low position. Also, you're going to be the most influential people in the world. What? What he's calling us to is to say, it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter uh, all those things that you think make you insignificant. He cares about those places too. And what he's saying is, as a Christian now, the, the, the temptation would be to live in fear, right? Especially as a culture becomes more hostile, maybe. Some of us would think, maybe our culture is becoming more hostile to Christians and Christianity. And Jesus is saying, Does it, you don't get to live in isolation from the world, actually. We're not to be indifferent to the world. In fact, we're to be involved and invested, this is the kind of people that you become. And so when we look at salt and light, Jesus is telling us, we, when we look at salt and light, we learn something about the world itself. But then we learn what we are to be in that world. That's what salt and light do. They tell us the kind of influence that we're meant to have. So we learn something first uh, about our world and then who we are in that world as followers of Christ. So when he says you are salt, he's saying you are the salt of your community. And salt, we have to think about it. Why would he say that? That's a strange thing to say, isn't it? Salt is a mineral. It's sodium chloride. It's an essential nutrient without which you will die. So Jesus is saying, uh, 
Well, you are this type of mineral. So we have to think about what is salt used for? And what does salt tell us about our world? Well, throughout history, the two primary things salt has been used for is to prevent decay and to amplify or enhance or, or add flavor. It's a seasoning in a food, right? So to prevent decay or to amplify and enhance flavor. In the ancient world before refrigeration, salt was used to preserve meat from decaying. So they would rub uh, the salt into the meat, and then that would preserve it for a long period of time. Just like you just put it in the refrigerator, they would put salt in it. They would rub it into the meat. Um, So also in cooking with seasoning, uh, salt has a profound effect on everything it's using. It's this tiny little mineral, and yet it greatly affects whatever it comes in contact with. there's a famous chef. Her name's Samin Nasrat. She has a book called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. She also has a Netflix show about cooking. And she describes to how most people think that if you want to make something more sweet, you think, well, you should add sugar. But actually, for lots of types of foods, to make something more sweet, you actually add salt because salt draws out bitterness. That's a great picture of what we are to be in this world. What Jesus is telling us is that the world, because the world needs salt, he's saying the world tends to deteriorate. The world tends to decay. The Bible puts it this way, that we live in a fallen, sinful place where much has gone wrong. The world we inhabit is more like sour milk or rancid vegetables or rotting fish, right? Things go bad. As a result of sin, life in the world does not just automatically tend to go upwards, right? You can think about this. Think about the best day that you've had. You've done some good things in your life, and yet there's times where you did everything right and it still didn't turn out right, did it? Even on our best days, sometimes we can't produce what we'd hoped because Jesus is trying to tell us that the world in and of itself will deteriorate. It will not automatically become what it was meant to become. It's like bacteria left unchecked. It will cause corruption and disease in the body. But Jesus is also saying then that the world lacks in flavor, that, that everything around us is always falling short of having um, the goodness or the truth or the beauty or the delight that we're all looking for. Now, this might seem to be the exact opposite of what many people believe about Christians, right? Christianity is a divine killjoy full of a dull, boring realities and oppressive rules, isn't it? Isn't that what kind of the common thought might be? And yet Jesus is saying the exact opposite. He's saying, look around at your world. It's full of good things, but it's clearly not as good and delightful and flavorful as we all seem to like. Why else would the state of Indiana and much of the Midwest have a massive opioid crisis that has been growing for the past four years? Why do we need to take drugs to enhance our lives? Just to look for some other experience that will make it better. Why are we always looking, maybe in a less immediately destructive way, for the next binge-worthy TV show, or the next party, or the next sexual encounter, or chasing after some better experience than what we've had, new travels, right? Why are we chasing the next emotional high, the next love interest, the next bonus at work, the next thing to pad our resume, the next uh, perfect photo for social media so that our lives will look as good as we wish they felt? Is that not part of the world that we live in? We're looking but not finding. 
We long for delight in our lives. We long for a flavorful life. The world is chasing after these things, but it never seems to find them. And so in that sense, it's not Christians, but the world who never seem to have enough fun, never seem to have enough flavor. The world left to its own devices is going to lack the goodness and the beauty and the full truth that we long for. The world itself is going to deteriorate. But then that means being salt, you are salt, tells you something about how you're to engage in this world, the kind of influence you're to have. It says this is what disciples of Christ, this is how they function in the world. Two things then, prevent decay and enhance delight in your local community. Prevent decay, preserve life, right? And, and then draw out delight in the places where you live. As the church Here's the thing, all the yous in this passage where it says you are salt, you are light, it's plural. So yes, it does mean that you individually, if you are a believer, participate in these things. But it also means that we as believers, as a church community, are a community among a broader community. And we are to be worked like salt gets worked into the meat. We're to be worked into the community, into the nitty-gritty day-to-day details of life. We're just these small little particles that yet get worked into the realities all around us to change the shape of society by preventing decay, preserving life, and enhancing the joy that we are meant to have. Let me give you an example of how that might work. My friend Kevin, when he was in college, uh, he was in a fraternity, and he had a couple other guys in his fraternity who went to church with him, but the vast majority were not uh, Christians like he was. And he would stay up late at a lot of these parties that his fraternity uh, would throw. And he would intentionally stay up late, not to drink, not to party, not to hook up, but so that he could look out for other people around him. He would uh, get his car ready, make all the space he could, and drive people back and forth all over campus and across town to make sure they got home safely if they were too drunk. He would uh, look out for the women who came to the fraternity because he knew a couple guys were up to no good, and he would look out for them and try to protect them from harmful things. He did this not because he's a nice guy, but he did it because, as he said, he, he viewed it as a way to show Christ's sacrificial service and love for the people around him in his local community. He didn't want to stay up till 4 a.m. He didn't want people to throw up in his car. But he also cared more about what would happen to them than what happened to him. Or another friend, Sarah, she had lived in a sorority house, and just by her very presence, uh, she changed the shape. She became almost one of the central people in this sorority, and she was the only Christian that lived there. But people started thinking a lot about their words around her, and they came to realize that their house was full of gossip, largely because she didn't go around talking badly about other people. And how she viewed um, men versus looking for hookups. She wasn't in that. And so people go, why? Why don't you do what we do? And they thought she was a little weird. And yet at the same time, everyone kept coming to her for advice because she had flavored this house with a different way of being that looked so different that people were both offended by it a little bit, but also attracted to it. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. 
they, Kevin and Sarah were vibrant parts of their community. They weren't boring people. They were settled. They were content. They were happy. They went through struggles, but they didn't let, them, didn't let it destroy them. And the people around them started asking, why aren't you looking for it? Why aren't you pursuing the same kind of things that I am? Why aren't you chasing the next guy? Why aren't you pursuing the next sexual encounter? Why aren't you worried about your grades or the job that you'll have or your future as much as I am? Friends, in what ways do you have opportunity to prevent decay or the breakdown that occurs in people's lives around you? In what ways are you committed to stopping evil on this campus or in our town? In what ways are you able to live for Christ in the decisions that you make at work? What, what ways do you have that you can set boundaries to actually protect the relationships, make them function in a way that's actually healthy, to bring better flavor to the relationships that you have? In what ways is your presence flavoring your neighborhood with love, service, justice that reflects the love, service, and justice of God? This is the kind of things that salty people think about. And Look, we can't prevent evil all the time, but Jesus does call us to express our Christian identity in every area of our life. If your identity is rooted in Christ, this will only keep happening more and more. Uh, you will look different to the world. You do belong to a different kind of kingdom, and therefore the flavor of your life is different. And that means you won't buy into all the same things that the world buys into. But you and I are often tempted not to live this out in our day-to-day -day lives. See, here's the thing. Jesus doesn't say, hey, Christians, become salty. Become people who prevent decay, who preserve life, who enhance flavor. He says, you are salt. This isn't something you have to become. It's something you already are if you are a Christian. And that's why Jesus then actually gives us a warning in the rest of verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. For, for you and I, our temptation is... All around us, there's pressure not to be too Christian, right? That's cool. Do that in your private life, but don't make it public. And yet Jesus is giving a warning, and he says, y'all as a community and as individuals are salt, but if you lose the saltiness, it's worthless. What he's saying is, Christians are supposed to be real Christians. You're supposed to be real disciples. That's the main meaning that Jesus is getting at. And if you think about salt, and he says it, it's not supposed to lose its saltiness, it doesn't do anything. It can't flavor your meal. Or if you just stand off to the side, I have this, uh, I use kosher salt when I cook. I have this little uh, jar that holds it right next to where I cook so I can just sprinkle it in as I go. But if I just leave it there, and I'm like, well, you know, the salt's near the pan. That doesn't make the food salty. If you just live near or in your society, but you, do nothing, you are nothing that is actually reflective of the difference that we are as Christians. He says, that's worthless, friends. That's not the call. That's not the way. That's not who we are. This warning in verse 13 is meant to shake us up. Because while we are not challenged by Jesus to become salty 
Our saltiness is a gift of Jesus' presence with us. We are challenged to stay salty, to stay persisting in this kind of life that he's given us. We are challenged to be what you actually are if you're truly a follower of Jesus, which is to be a real Christian. And, and salt, what is it for? Salt isn't good by itself. You're not just supposed to eat salt. I mean, maybe some of you do that, but that's strange. You're not just supposed to eat salt. You put salt in food. Salt is for something else. So when Jesus says that you are salt, that means you and you and you and you are not for yourself anymore. You are for the others around you. Your life isn't about you. It's not about just your ambitions or your achievements or your success. Your life is for others. It is for the good of others. And so in all things where we go as workers, as as classmates, as dorm mates, as roommates, as family, as friends, to strangers that we meet, we are for others, not just for ourselves. That's what it means to be the salt. Let me give you a, a big example of this. There's a church, there's a couple churches in the Midwest, and there's also a church in LA, in California, that they, they have all recently sought to do something pretty similar. And the church in LA went around and discovered all the medical debt of the people who lived in the lowest income housing and around them. And they went and paid over $5 million of their medical bills. Because what they said was, we as people of Jesus, we have come to understand what it means to be crushed under the burden of our own sin. How could we reflect that in our community? And so they went out and they said, so many people are crushed by medical bills. What if we help display that the kind of God we have, the Father that we have is someone who doesn't leave us crushed, but unburdens us. And so they went out and they unburdened all the people they could who were most likely not to be able to pay their medical bills. That's an example of being salty, but it's costly, right? To the tune of five plus million dollars for them. Look, we are to be preventing this badness in our lives as salt. But Jesus also says that you are light. And that he describes as shining God's goodness into the world. So what does light, if you're light, what does is, what is the fact that we are light tell us about the world around us? Not only are, is our world prone to deterioration or decay, it also tends towards darkness, does it not? If you need light, it's because you are in the dark. What Jesus is saying all throughout the Bible, the picture you see over and over and over again of light is that light comes into the darkness. And when, when light comes in the Bible, it's often a picture of bringing life, of bringing hope, and of bringing salvation. Saved from the darkness that haunts you. Saved from all those inner things that you wish no one knew. The moment you begin to look at things seriously, it is not hard to see that the world is a dark place, right? For all of our progress in medicine and technology and education, we find that uh, even as we improve some aspects of the quality of life, there is still an immeasurable uh, quantity of hatred, of harm, of destruction, of pain, of suffering. And not just generically, but some of that we inflict on each other. For all of our knowledge, we don't seem to be able to progress beyond our sin condition, right? 
You might be able to describe the world better or discover more helpful things, but you will never be able to discover something through science or medicine or technology that can answer the most important things in life, such as knowing God or why we're here or what the meaning of life is. Ultimate truth isn't something you're just going to stumble on and find. Instead, we stumble around in the dark wondering what's really true, how things are really supposed to go. The Bible tells you that truth and light and life are something you must receive. It is not something you will just go out and find. You might pursue it, but you won't find it. Look, think about this. Aren't there incredible, just think about the highest levels of politics, the highest levels of business, the highest levels of, of, of fame and celebrity. And there are people in every one of those places who are the most successful, most accomplished, most achieved people, incredibly educated, smart, bright, brilliant, talented people. And yet for all of their uh, education, they are only more sophisticated sinners. We would not be hearing about hashtag me too if that was not the case. Right? You can't educate yourself out of the darkness it's good for us to work in those spheres, to work to influence laws, to make things better. But ultimately, you will not legislate darkness out of your own heart or out of others' hearts. So, you are meant to be light in a dark world. You are meant to be light. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, that when he looks around at the world, this is his assessment. He says, the light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light, which is evidenced because their works are evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, because if you were to come to the light, your work, your efforts would be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, and it can be clearly seen that their work has been carried out in God. But what he says in that, right, is that light has come into the world. God has come into the world to show us the way, but we actually love darkness rather than light. Jesus says that we as Christians are to function as light. We are light. And so we are supposed to be those who both expose darkness and also reveal a new and better way of life. This isn't about self-improvement. It's not because we read a bunch of self-help books, help books. It's because we actually have a different kind of life, kingdom life, God-centered life, Christian life. It's actually different. That does no longer participate in the things of darkness. The primary task of the church is to preach the gospel. This is the main difference, to preach the gospel and then go out and be prepared to live the gospel in all things that you are part of. This is the main thing that we have to offer the world. We are not first about social status, politics, race, gender, money, or power. Even though the Bible addresses all of those things and cares deeply about them, the first and primary identity that we now have, Scripture says, if you are a believer, is in Christ. Your life is hidden with God in Christ, as Colossians 3 puts it. You are safe in Him, ultimately, eternally safe, so that no matter what happens in this life, you can be light even if the darkness comes against you. Now, this matters because as Jesus was seeking to warn us that we maybe are in danger of not living our Christian lives before others, being salt, the salt can lose its saltiness. In the light picture that he gives to us, he says, you will not be hidden. And what he means is, 
Look, it says in verse 14 and 15, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the, in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. I used to think that what Jesus was saying was, you're a light, so go become very light in everything you do. Go like, be like the city on the hill. Display as much as you can about your life, which is true. Display your life as a Christian. But I always thought that it was really up to me. But what he says is, look, Jesus is the one who is the light. He's the one who lit the lamp. And what he's saying is when you go to your house and you're going to read, you don't turn on the light so you can see the book and then throw a blanket over it. And so he says, the same thing happened here. Jesus comes and gives you this new kind of life, but then he's not going to hide you away. He's the one who lit you up in this new way. And so if salt is about, you are going to be useful. You'll get worked into wherever you are. It doesn't matter if it's a great place of high status or a low position. He is calling you into this life of discipleship, and he will use you there. It will not be in effect. You don't have to worry about whether your life is going to be reflective of Christ. He will do that if you are following him. But then the light picture says, not only will you be useful, it will actually be effective. It's not going to be hidden. It's not going to be for nothing. It's not going to be like someone lit a lamp and now your life is wasted so you can't see anything or do anything good. No, he says, when you follow him, you follow uh, the life that he has given us, you live a new kind of life that gives light, which is hope and life and salvation to the world. You guys maybe have seen this if you've been around campus a while. There's a guy who, uh, the street preacher, who goes around campus and preaches out on different areas of our campus, right? And uh, he talks about sin, and he talks about evil, and he talks about Satan. Uh, All those things are in the Bible. I agree. Those things are there. He sometimes calls people out directly. Like, he'll say, you're not wearing enough clothes. Or he'll talk about the way different people are. Uh, He'll talk about... Um, people who are gay. He'll talk about ways that people are just sinners, right? And the Bible does talk about sin constantly, actually. He's not wrong there. He talks about hell. That's not wrong either. It's also in the Bible. Jesus is actually the person in the Bible who talks the most about hell. My issue with what he's doing is more about how he's doing it. There's two things. One, the tone of it is very condemning. But Jesus comes here and says, Christians, you are light. Now, how light, how hopeful, how helpful is it if you walk around and you only condemn? My issue is that the rest of the gospel isn't there. Where is the part about God coming to save? Where is the part about how I too am a sinner and I have found grace? The gospel brings light. It brings hope. It is our salvation. And so if we walk around only condemning, if that's what people see, even if it is important to talk about sin at at various times, then we will not be light. It is not hopeful. There is not something that talks about who we are really becoming when we have Christ. But sometimes Christians and the way we go about stuff can make us want to flee from the rest of our society again, right? We, We don't want to be those who simply associate with those who walk around condemning others. 
And yet Jesus, again, is saying, no, you cannot live a hidden life. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian. You can't be isolated. You can't be indifferent to the world around you just because you're afraid to be involved. Instead, you must be involved. You must be invested. There's something about the way Christians are, about the way that we're meant to live together, talk together, talk to each other, the way we treat each other, that is meant to relate to our surroundings, to our society, in such a way that others would come and say, what kind of people are these? Who are these people? How is it that these people come from all these different places, from all these different backgrounds, and yet they're united together? They maybe came from nothing, and yet they act like they have everything. They're significant people, yet they're so humble. How is this so? How can this be possible? How can we do that? This is the challenge for us. The church does not fit into the surrounding culture, but it is yet for everything in our surrounding culture and society. We are challenged to love those around us. The unique thing about being a Christian is that we let go of any pride that affiliates us with any particular human group, and we instead are affiliated with Christ. And those, those things mean that we're kingdom people. Our influence in the world is to demonstrate that God has given us new life. Look, no one can have a life that they don't have. But if you have that life that you've received in Christ, then it's the only life you can now live. Part of our influence is revealing to others there truly is a different way that comes through turning and trusting that God is actually a loving Father who's given us a place in His family. That's what it means when He says, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You have a Father now who is totally working for your good, even if you're in a hard place. Jesus loved sinners. He loved wrongdoers. He loved lawbreakers. And to be light in the world, in our local communities, the only way we're going to be able to do that is to remain in the one who said that he himself is the light of the world. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he says that whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. If you're going to be light in the local community, you have to be intimately connected to the one who is the light itself. It's the only way. Otherwise, we'll lose hope. We'll feel fearful. We'll find many ways to pursue our own ambitions, our own distractions. But what Jesus is saying is your society needs you in a distinctly Christian way, and that's hard, and it can be very difficult. It doesn't always look big. It's not showy. It's not glamorous. It's working yourself into the daily realities of your life in such a way that others come to see who God is and say, oh, if only he were really like that. If only he were truly that merciful, that accepting, that loving, that forgiving. And all of what we do is meant to say, oh, but he is.